Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. This podcast is sponsored by the ASC Masterclass, a five-day seminar taught in Hollywood. Learn more at theasc.com. Hello, my name is Ian Marks, and in this episode of the American Cinematographer Podcast, I'm speaking with Nicola Pecorini, director of photography for the film The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. Chances are, even if you're not a follower of the films of director Terry Gilliam, you're familiar with Nicola's work. Over the past 30 years, the two filmmakers have collaborated on six feature films together, seven if you count the first attempt at making The Man Who Killed Don Quixote way back in 1999. It's a modern-day fairy tale about a cynical advertising director, played here by Adam Driver, who finds himself trapped in the outrageous delusions of an old Spanish shoemaker, played here by Jonathan Price, who believes himself to be the real Don Quixote. The tale of Pecorini and Gilliam's first attempt at Quixote is told in the documentary feature Lost in La Mancha. In our discussion, Nicola and I discuss the nature of his creative relationship with Gilliam, the lessons learned from their brush with failure, and how they weathered the storm of adversity to complete the film 25 years later. Nicola, you know, like I already said, I'm a big fan of your work and with, with Terry. You've been working for him for a long time, since 1996, since Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, right before you, the two of you tried to make Quixote for the first time. Would you say that this is much a cathartic moment for you as it is for him? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I, I did have my cathartic moment at the moment. Let's say that I finished Color Correction and then there was the Cannes premiere. For me, the movie was done for me. For Terry, I don't know if he reached his catharsis yet because the baby is just got out in America, yes, but he's still not out in the UK. And uh, so I think that's going to be the moment in which he can finally let go. Uh, but yeah, for me, it was quite cathartic, I must say, yes. Was Making this movie a shared dream for the two of you? Shared nightmare, you would say, yes. Um, it was one of those things that you don't want to let go. And uh, Terry wouldn't let go in any possible way. And uh, I had a taste of what could have been back in 2000. For me, mainly, was to work again with Terry. And uh, for me... It could have been any movie, but yet, throughout the years, he kind of took on a different kind of meaning, and it became also my obsession, but kind of a second-hand obsession. Uh, My obsession was to work with Terry, because I have a lot of fun working with him. I must say, he's the director I most enjoy working with, uh, regardless of my role. I had the luck of working with a lot of good directors in my Steadicam days, but I never had as much fun as working with Terry. So for me, it was stick to it because we can make a good movie. Then I became Sancho, yes. What is it about working with Terry that's fun for you? Well, number one, I like his method. He's very methodic. He's very thorough with everything. He want to know everything. He want to 
control every single aspect of uh, his movies, but at the same time is so confident that he's very able to hire people who can add to his ideas. And therefore, he keeps always a very wide open door for other people's ideas. For him, the ideas are worth the idea. It doesn't matter where they come from. If the craft guy, craft service guy has a good idea, he embraces it. And therefore, the craft service guy feels entitled to give the idea, if you see what I mean. So it's a kind of a circle of creation, and I love being part of it. Would he have made this film without you? Oh, he would have made this uh, movie no matter what, selling his daughters. and uh, It doesn't matter. He was obsessed by this movie. So, yes, I think that he could have done it with, without me. And uh, I just didn't want him to do it without me, number one. <laughs> and uh, from his point of view, actually, you should ask him that question. But he's the only one who can answer. But I think that having me simplified his life because I knew everything. I knew the location. I knew what he had in mind. I knew what the genesis of certain choices and therefore, I was always defending those choices toward the various producers who was always, the, throughout the years we changed so many of them, they were always kind of questioning those choices. And I had the answers. And uh, Terry is not really good in uh, dealing with producers. So the fact that I had those answers, he saved him from delivering those answers, if you see what I mean. There's this kind of poetic narrative going around that even trying to make the film, this film in particular, is in and of itself a quixotic pursuit. You even called yourself Sancho there a minute ago. And yes, you can say that making a movie is in some ways like going on a quest or fighting a giant in that it's hard and there are obstacles, but isn't it more like just that making movies is hard? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I would add one adjective. Uh, making an independent movie is always the quest. Uh, making a studio movie is more of an industry. It's more of a uh, sure thing, if you see what I mean. Everything is so bad precisely planned and thought out and financed and from the very beginning that you leave very little space for the unexpected and more or less you always have uh, wide, shoulders wide enough to at least throw money at the unexpected, if you see what I mean. So making an independent movie, I think, is always an amazing accomplishment. From a point of view of the cursing thing, I don't believe one, that I think is bullshit. Um, I once made a movie uh, with Dario Argento that was in the movie was uh, the Macbeth. And the Macbeth has a terrible reputation, <laughs> if you are aware of it. And uh, we made the movie, everything went smooth. So it's, it's, it's totally, I don't believe in that stuff. I believe in the fact that a film director like Terry, um, an artist like Terry, when he's encounters a 
story and a storytelling like Cervantes can become obsessed. Orson Welles did. Uh, we managed to finish it. And that's already a big accomplishment. And, but, and, but, you know, when you become obsessed, you have to get this, the thing out of your system. The only way to do it is to make the movie. And uh, so Terry was really always ready to do anything in order to get the movie off the ground. And, you know, I was just trying to protect him somehow and uh, help him uh, if uh, the devil was actually delivering. What do you think it is that grabs on to these filmmakers and doesn't let go? Not just Quixote's story, but uh, Cervantes um, as a writer. Because I think Cervantes as a writer, even though he lived uh, almost 500 years before Terry, shared the same kind of fascination between what's real and what's not real, what you make become real. I mean, if you, I don't know how familiar you are with the novel, but, but he's completely wacky. And, you know, he's like so out of this world that he's out of this world now. I can imagine what impact he had back then. Uh, and Terry finds a material that is like written by a clone of him. I don't know how to explain it. 500 years before, of course, he become obsessive. In the same way Orson Welles was, because, again, totally different kind of director, but with the same kind of push. Well, the big difference is that Orson Welles never got to finish his film. Yeah. And also, he, all the time he went back to shooting, there were a few times, he was making the same movie, while Terry never even thought of uh, using a foot of what we shot back then. Uh, every time we were going was a new script, was a new schedule, was a new need, and uh, blah, blah, blah. So every time was a new film. It was quite a different movie back in 2000. What about the filmmakers? Uh, in what ways are you different, let's say, as a person? And how does that make a difference to your craft? Or does it make a difference? No, no, I mean, yes and no. The, the approach is the same. The difference is that I know more tricks. I have more experience. I have 20 years more experience. And therefore, I have, uh, you know, it's like if you would ask the same question to a cook, are you a different cook? No, I cook in the same way. I just get to know more ingredients. But the approach to the cooking is the same. So, and, and, the, and the goal is the same, is to help a director tell a story in the best possible, effective way. And that's my approach. It has been back then and it still is now, with the difference that, again, now I know more tricks. I know more because I have 20 years more experience. I have uh, more movies under my belt. Uh, when I did Fear and Loading in Las Vegas, I had only another small independent movie under my belt as a cinematographer. And, and, and I had 20 years of experience as camera steadicam operator. But in terms of responsibility, I became much better in the last 20 years because I know exactly what my responsibilities are now. And I, 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 I take them on 
from the very beginning and um, why before I was a bit naive in certain things. Now I, I, I know more, so I'm more mature for sure. The cliche is that one learns more from failure than one does success. And considering everything that happened with Quixote the first time, what were the lessons to be learned from that experience? Aha. <laughs> Many lessons. I mean, uh, it would be easy to say never trust anybody. <laughs> but um, I think the biggest lesson I got from that experience was that if you get hit by something and you don't act fast, that's it. You're ruined. Uh, back then, if uh, decisions would have been taken right away by the producers, we could have saved the movie. Um, they didn't want to, and they killed the movie. Uh, because at that point, it was more convenient for them. It was less risky. They let the burden over to the insurance company. And actually, is something that happens quite often with Terry. Every producer would like to say, I produce the Terry Gilliam movie, right? But when they start approaching and understanding the scale of detail that terries require, they get scared. Generally, their approach is sloppy, and therefore they don't understand. Like I remember the very first time we went to the horse masters for Quixote, right? To choose Rosinante and the other horses. And so we get there, and the producers were there, and uh, Ricardo Cruz, that is the horse master that we knew from the previous Quixote, was there, and he prepared all the options and things like that. And uh, he made a wonderful job. There was a Rosinante that had to be Rosinante, so Terry was very happy. After 10 minutes, he said, this is Rosinante, we have him. And uh, you could see the producers who would say, okay, let's go now. And Terry instead stayed there for another three hours, choosing the saddle, choosing the reins, choosing the donkey. And you could see in the eyes of the producers that, like, why is he doing all this thing? This thing will be made by the prop master when is the time. They couldn't understand Terry's attitude. And Terry's has that approach to filmmaking. So producers who are not ready to accept it, they get scared. They, they literally get scared. And that's what happened in 2000 with the French people. They got scared and they could see their way out and they took it. It's funny too, because there's an element of risk in making any kind of art, and especially filmmaking. And a big part of being not just a filmmaker, but an artist is willing to stick your neck out for your art, knowing that you might fail, but you go through with it anyway. Yeah, but I have a question for you then. How many producers you know now, 2019, who produce to make art? They all there to make money. When you make art, you take the risk not to make any money. So it's hard to quantify, but it seems like once upon a time, producers didn't feel that way about making movies like this. I had the chance of and the luck of experiencing 
probably the last moment of the great <laughs> period of cinema in the 80s. And there was a different approach. Real producers knew what the movie needed and that they weren't stopping because it wasn't in the budget. You said before that one of the reasons why you like working with Terry is because he wants control. But how does that square with the risk that's so often involved with making good art? But he's, at the same time, he, he wants control, but at the same time, he's very pragmatic. So let's say he has a vision and he wants that thing to be made in metal 60 feet high, but then uh, he, we can't do it, we, there is no space or whatever. Then he finds a way to make it 22 feet high and in, in, in wood. But he wants to be in control of the second choice as well, if you see what I mean. Sometimes in uh, productions, there is a total disconnection between different departments and uh, certain departments are more, let's say, sensible to the budget needs. And therefore, they, without saying anything, they underscale what has been asked for without telling anything. One thing is to say, guys, we don't have the money. We have to think a second thing. You can't hide the fact that there is no budget because at the end of the day, you're going to show. And I find myself more and more in productions where there is this situation that, that you, there is a plan and then it cannot be implemented because of budget restrictions. But at the same time, the thing is not said out loud, therefore it's all little games to try to cut the corners and things like that. We have to cut the corner. Okay, let's sit down and see how we can cut the corner the best way. That's the kind of control Terry wants. But then what about what you said before about not trusting anybody? It is a big problem because it becomes clear that there are two different agendas. And uh, the moment the agenda gets pursued with trying to hide it from the other, then is when the trust fails. Uh, if I see that you are very honest with me, then I trust you. Right, so it's okay for the filmmakers and the producers to have different agendas uh, so long as both parties are getting what they want, right? Absolutely. But as long as the agendas are open on the table, it's fine. Because then you find a, a, a moment of synthesis between those needs and those wishes. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, if you decide to shoot a script, you should understand that script before you get involved. And I see that this is one of the problems very often with Terry's scripts, that it might be a scene, exterior day, a church square, and our hero crosses the square while there is an auto da fe and cut to the next scene. Now, that, that is what? Four, four lines? But what is in the auto da fe? What does it mean? They're burning people? Yes, they're burning people. <laughs> it's not that easy. <laughs> it's four lines, but it involves a huge production effort. And uh, if they don't read it from the beginning, then they get scared. 
And this is a real example, was a scene that we had in the previous Quixote script. As a cinematographer, what is the burden of responsibility that you feel for the success of a film? Like, what depends on you photographically as well as in the context of a collective effort? My main responsibility is to deliver the director what he wants, serving the story. And uh, the other big responsibility is that somehow, given that what goes through the lens and get captured is the sum of the work of everybody else, from the costume person to the set dresser, to the actor, to the makeup, to every single person who's involved in making a movie, I feel that responsibility of not fucking up, if you see what I mean. Because I can screw up all their job. And uh, after me, there is the editor who can screw up everything. But me, I'm, I'm the last before the last passage that I have that responsibility. In the beginning, sometimes I was kind of not upset, but kind of, why is the makeup guy on my neck? Because you want to make sure that this job is properly photographed. That's the reality. So now I, I have much more comprehension for their foibles, let's say, than I used to have. What is the cinematographer's responsibility to morale? Let's say to continue the metaphor, to keep the knight on his horse. Yeah, somehow I find myself more and more in that position because uh, I start being one of the oldest on the set with more experience and therefore they look up to me in that way. And uh, I'm actually good in reacting to mishaps. And uh, again, experience helps a lot because at the end, the mishaps are quite similar uh, in different productions, but they repeat themselves. And movies have the tendency of uh, having a, a life of their own and uh, somehow making themselves. And I think it's always good to let the door open for those mishaps, if you want to call it that way, as long as you can make the best out of it. You know, a, a bad weather day can uh, actually add to the drama of the scene, even though you always wanted it to be sunny on that day. But okay, it's windy, great. We love wind. So, yeah, I, I find more and more myself in the position of uh, being the old wise man. And I'm not sure I like it, though. <laughs> We've been talking about the business and the relationship aspects of being a filmmaker, being a cinematographer. And now I'd like to pivot towards the cinematography itself. One of the things that stands out for me, especially in the beginning of the film, there is this commitment to realism where the cinematography isn't hiding or embellishing anything about the story, except, of course, when the story calls for it and the inner lives of the characters began to intersect with the diegetic action. Yeah, you, I can agree on that in the sense that, uh, number one, uh, my approach 
to any production is to be less obtrusive as possible. I, uh, I, one of the, my biggest fear would be that I work on a movie and then uh, somebody goes and sees it and uh, says, oh, uh, your work was great. The movie sucked, though. <laughs> if the cinematography stands alone, I think it didn't serve the story. It didn't serve the movie. So that's my first approach. Secondary on this specific one, uh, given that there is this big thing about what's reality, what's fantasy, our approach wanted to be realistic. If you want to call it new realism, yeah, I take it. Uh, we never thought of that. In Toby's movie, we thought of something not exactly new realistic, but the, the concept was simple, was, okay, if the student movie Toby shot propelled him to fame and work, it must have been something special. So how are we going to do that special? And uh, so we said, we're going to do a Gilliam movie. We're going to do everything wide angle. And actually my uh, reference for it was, an amazing movie from the early 60s called I Am Cuba. It, it is all shot with the 5.9 engineer, 16 mil, and, and it's all wide angle and it's all fantastic, black and white, 133, and that's the way we shot it. And we shot it with the GoPro of all cameras. And uh, so that, that was uh, kind of uh, the, the only real cinematics reference if you want. Right, because in the beginning, it just it doesn't feel like a Terry Gilliam movie normally feels. There's a heightened sense of reality to a lot of his work. But with Quixote, uh, there's so much crossover um, between fantasy and reality, and it all feels the same. And even when it starts to feel a little bit like, oh, this is a fantasy, it's actually reality. And these characters are are playing characters. That's exactly the point. So we succeeded. I'm happy to hear that because the boundaries are not there because the, in Quixote and in the movie, you never know which is which. <laughs> I, mean, I had to admit, it took me two viewings to really get a feel for the film uh, because the first time around, I was so, I don't want to use the word disoriented in a pejorative sense, but I felt that I was constantly having to hurry to, keep up because if you stop to think about what you just saw by the time you've sorted it out the film has already moved on to something else entirely yeah and i will tell you more is also what goes through in the novel the novel jumps right left center i mean you never know what you're dealing with in the novel and so i think from a literary adaptation, I think, is a big, big uh, success because it reflects completely what was the Cervantes style. So I'm glad because of that. I remember reading a critic from some scholar of Cervantes in Spain, and he was underlining this fact that it was exactly the same structure as the novel, uh, so unstructured. <laughs> The language of this film is a language of cinematic tropes. What role do you play in the development of this language? And where do you start? 
a lot of it, it works in pre-production. That's another reason why I like working with Terry because we really think things out beforehand, ruling out certain things and leading one way or the other. And uh, so pre-production plays a huge role. The edit, I think, um, not really, because if you don't have it to start with, the edit cannot enhance it and uh, make it stand out. Yes, you can kind of subdue it and uh, don't make it stand out, but that would be a bad editing. So in the editing, I think is more about pace, but all the elements are already being captured. Where did you shoot the film? We filmed all over Spain, in Navarra, the little village, Galipienzo. Uh, we didn't go back to the desert where we had the disaster last time, also because we didn't need it anymore. For the desert, we went to Fuerteventura in the Canary Islands. For then uh, the big party scene, the final of the movie has been shot in uh, Tumar. It's quite amazing place in Portugal that is uh, practically four convents, one next to the, uh, the other, and each one with, let's say, two, three hundred years apart architectonically. So within the same location, we had so much to play with. One of the most distinctive things about a Terry Gilliam movie is its cinematography. But from Fear and Loathing on, his films have also been your films. His cinematography is also your cinematography. Yeah, I think I think that that was uh, what made it that from Spear and Loading On, he always called me back because somehow we share the same vision. I always loved wide angles even before I met him. I enjoyed the dutching. I loved the camera moving all the time, maybe because I've done so many years of Steadicam. And... Uh, Somehow he likes it too. So we match perfectly. And, uh, you know, generally my colleagues are not extremely happy to work with uh, such wide angle lenses because, of course, it's more tricky to light it precisely and in total control because you see everything. So you can't put flags. And uh, I think that's beside the personalities, but technically speaking, why he kept me. How has this collaboration evolved over the years? I think we became uh, more moderate in using these these things, uh, especially on Quixote. Also because of the fact we shot in anamorphic, and anamorphic doesn't offer you as many wide angles as spherical lenses, so we had to kind of limit it. But again, when you then kicks it in, it's even more powerful, I think. I, I couldn't say the ball. He just uh, fine-tuned, and uh, but it's the same. The approach is the same. You know, there are certain times in which I remember when we shot Zero Theorem, Terry was, and we never going to use a 14 mil lens on this one because the, the 14 mil in spherical is what we call the Gilliam because we end up using it all the time. And uh, on the second setup, maybe not the first, but surely the second, 
Uh, he asked for a lens. They put on the lens, and he says, nah, "I want to go wider." And we ended up with a fourteen, <laughs> and we shot practically all the movie with a fourteen. What was your camera and lens package comprised of? We used Alexa STX and two Alexa Minis with anamorphic lenses from Technovision Rome, one of a kind set of lenses that were built in 1978 for Apocalypse Now by Storaro. And uh, they are quite an amazing set of lenses. The color and the way they take flares is quite unique. And I was counting on that because at the beginning we wanted to shoot film because also cost-wise there isn't much difference. Actually, film is slightly cheaper. We're talking a few thousand, but cheaper. But the problem, there was no lab in Spain. Therefore, we couldn't have moved from location to location at the speed we were moving before we could have got a net clearance from the lab. So we had to shoot digital. We got an Alexa STX, so I had at least the uh, optical viewfinder and two Alexa Mini. And this set of lenses, there was, if I remember right, 25, 35, 40, 50, 75, 85, 100, 135, 180 and a zoom that we never used. We had a Steadicam. It was a pretty straightforward package, and I used most of the time a camera is on a mini jib that I operate myself with a Weaver Stedman camera. But, yeah, then I could go on technically, but I think it's boring. So, Other than addressing the issue of getting access to a reliable lab, how else has the development of technology over the past 25 years affected the way you make movies? But I think that on one side, it made making movies or telling story with motion pictures more precisely, more accessible and therefore more democratic in the sense that if you have an idea and a story to tell, uh, now it's much easier to find the tools to put it on screen. At the same time, I think that the digital technology is not, for capturing images, is not yet at the same level of film. A film has a better latitude, has a better quality, has more magic in it. Um, Digital don't yet. And I don't think we will ever get there because of the nature of the pixels. You know, they're talking about 8K, but doesn't matter. It's still pixels. Is uh, photochemical is another story. Is uh, again softer, more magic. There is a reason why a lot of productions in the U.S. are going back to film because actors were pretty fed up of looking like crap. Digital doesn't forgive. Uh, if you have a pimple, is a big is a big pimple. <laughs> That's it. And if you you can you can put as many pixels as you want, but the pimple will show up in two hundred pixels instead of twenty. But it's still a pimple. You know what I mean? And so uh, I like the digital again capturing image 
give me film anytime. Uh, manipulating the image, I'm very happy that they came up with the DI and all the possibilities that that offers you because it gives you much more freedom and it translates in being able to move faster on the set because there are a lot of things that you don't have to worry about because you can easily fix later on in the eye. Do you think that digital technology has the capability to mitigate some of the risks that we were talking about? In general, the risks involved with making a film, particularly for independent filmmakers. I know that some encounter issues with completion bond companies when it comes to shooting on film, in the sense that these companies consider film a larger risk or digital less of a risk. I, I think is is uh, silly because there is risk involved in, in also in shooting uh, with digital. Uh, I just came out of a production where we had problems not once but six times with Codex Mags. They couldn't download and things like that, and they had to be sent there. And uh, they saved the footage, but not all of it. So the risks, I think, are the same throughout the 40 years of making this job. Lab screw-ups were really few uh, in, in my film experience. So I think that's come from ignorance, and uh, it's also true that Nowadays, the vast majority of directors of photographers under 30s, they never seen a piece of film. So they wouldn't know how to use it. And it's also why DIT became such an important role on the set, because they don't know how to expose. I still expose using a light meter. And uh, they look at me like I'm an old dinosaur, but... At the same time, the, when there is a DAT, I don't need it. All I need is a data manager to download the data. But I don't need somebody to tell me, hey, the waveform, you see, it's not picking enough or whatever. It's, uh, I, I don't care about waveforms. I know what the sensibility is, and I, I, I put my meter on it, and that's it. On, on the set... I think that shooting digital introduced very bad habits, like, for example, the fact that because he is not film, it doesn't cost anymore. Okay, and another one, and you, 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 you hit one slate, and within the slate, you do five, six, seven takes without stopping. Now, if you need a second take, it's because something didn't go right, so why don't you stop, talk it, and do another take. Not only what happens talking with editor friends, by doing so, by putting so many takes within the same slate, things get lost in editing. Because no matter how good the script supervisor is, you can't take notes of 10 performances in the same slate. So I think that's a very bad habit. And I'm telling you, at the end of the day, it's not any cheaper. I remember when we did Zero Theorem in Bucharest, I arrived there, and again, the production and the bond, and everybody was, ah, you have to shoot digital. 
And I said, why? Because it's the only thing we can afford. And he said, okay, there was a film lab in Bucharest at the time. He said, just make your numbers. I'm not asking anything. Do your number, do your sums, and then come back to me. And they came back two days later saying, we're shooting film. It's $50,000 cheaper. The post-production workflow that digital requires is just crazy. And so many things can go wrong. It's, it's more democratic, yes. If you have a great story, you can shoot a movie with an iPhone. I don't agree at all on the idea that it's less risky. Well, how often do you find yourself rolling through multiple takes, even though it's a way of working that you don't necessarily agree with? And how do you address those situations? Let's put it this way. If a director at the end of a performance say, don't cut, let's do another one, is one thing. If that comes from the first AD, then it's not good because it's not an artistic choice. It's, again, a production choice. He, he thinks that by making multiple takes within the same slate, he saves time. And therefore, it looks good. You don't, you're not saving any time. Because when, when, uh, when you stop and, and, and think about what you just have done and what you're about to do, you certainly have an advantage. It's a bit like one thing that is really missing in filmmaking nowadays is the re ritual it was once to sit all together and watch dailies. And watching dailies is not to then pat each other on the back and say, oh, we've been so clever, we've been so good. But the, the contrary is to see the problems and talk them out in order to do a better job. Nowadays, there isn't that thing anymore. They put the dailies online, you watch it on your stupid computer or the iPad or the, even worse, the iPhone, and then you never discuss it with uh, the hair guy and you see that 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 wig is a problem or things like that because then the next day on the set you have so many things to do you forget about it right sometimes last looks just aren't enough last looks are never good enough because <laughs> again then there is that's another of those little problems when uh, that you suffer when you do multiple takes, that actors sweat and problems surface. Last look is for each take, not for the next 10 minutes of acting. <laughs> right, and it's got to be different watching something on playback, on set, versus later on, on a big screen, especially after you've had a chance to get some distance from it. Yeah, exactly. And and not only, you can fix it for the next day. And, you know, I, I had, the, again, the luck to work in a period in which it wasn't uncommon that because of what you've seen on dailies, the next day you say, you know what, we need to do, again, that shot because we need to do it better. Now there is an individual judgment on uh, each one sees the dailies separately. And actually, I believe a lot of people don't even bother. And then that's it. It's, it stops there. 
there is, it doesn't help the process of doing a better job. This film seems to have an opinion about the destructive nature of a selfish creative process, how the world can collapse around an artist when they're not sensitive, I guess, to the needs of others. And, and Toby is very much insensitive in that way. His only concern is with how he feels and what affects him. Lots of directors are like that, unfortunately. I think that up to a certain extent, to be a director, you need to be full of yourself in the sense that you can't think that anybody else could do your job. You can do it better than anybody else. You need a bit of that push. For me, is not something nice to have, but I do understand that to be a director, you need that thing. You need a push to be able to sell yourself. But when, when you go over a certain limit, you castrate everybody else because there is only your ego and room for that. And unfortunately, on a set, there are a lot of other egos. And sometimes uh, even as big as yours, dear director, and if not bigger. <laughs> and when that clash happens, it's ugly. <laughs> I'm telling you, it can be ugly, ugly, ugly. And the impact that a film crew and a film production can have on virgin territory is devastating. Uh, it can be devastating. When you end up shooting in places that and never seen a film crew before, I'm telling you, there the, are the marriages broken. I mean, movie people are ruthless. They have no ethic. They live in their own words. It can be very disrespectful of the place and the people. And I think that was one thing that Terry wanted to put in the movie, and he did very well. What about cinematographers in this context? Do you need to be selfish? Do you need to have an ego or not? Because in a sense, you're there to lead the crew, but you're also there to follow the director. I don't have an ego from that point of view. I gave up a long time ago the idea of, you know, making always the pretty picture. Also because sometimes you don't need to make the pretty picture. You need to make the day. And you need to put, not to steal time, to the performance itself. One of the great joys I have is when it happens to be there and actors just surprise you. Like working with Jonathan Price and Adam Driver, but especially Jonathan, was such a joy. Because he was always a blast. He was always surprising you. He was always so good. And at the same time, so relaxed uh, that it was just a joy, you know. And you have, in those moments, I feel the privilege of being there in front row and being the first one to be able to enjoy that performance. And when a good actor is performing good, is very little like it. How does it feel to have the man who killed Don Quixote out in the world now, this thing that's inhabited your dreams or nightmares for a quarter of a century? Or is it still with you? You know, is it like one of those things that's just never going to go away? How does it feel? It feels like a huge relief, a huge monkey off my back. And then at the same time, yes, he's always going to be with me because it was such a long portion of my life. 
and I invested so much into it and I gave up so many other jobs in order to maybe do it, maybe do it, maybe do it throughout the years. Uh, that he's always going to be with me, but but uh, he's off my back. He's now with something I've done. He's there, and uh, he will stay there, uh, probably for some time too. Because if the one thing that gives you satisfaction is when uh, a movie stays, and you know, the, the Fear and Loathing is the classic example, is a milestone of a certain generation of film goers and he will stay there. It's no, no way. It's not going to go away. Don't say it's my legacy. That's bullshit. But he's, he's, I've, I've done it and I can say I've done it. That's it. That was cinematographer Nicola Pecorini talking about his work on the Terry Gilliam film The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. Thanks for listening. You can find more articles and podcasts on the art and craft of cinematography, including a companion interview to this episode with director Terry Gilliam at ASCMag.com. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography.